Father, we need to hear from you. We need to see ourselves clearly as we come to your word today. We are counting on and we need your promised help with both of these things. Help us to hear you properly that we might live differently for you and with others. We ask that you would guide us through this process together now in these moments. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. It was a, a charmed life that he lived, as far as preschoolers go. You could say that he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Sure, he didn't enjoy the advantages and luxuries that Prince George would have today, but for the time in which he lived, this little guy had it made. He had it made. I mean, his grandfather was the king. Not bad. His father was a much-loved prince. Not only was his grandfather the king, his grandfather was the first king their nation had ever had. Now that came with some challenges to it, but it also had some benefits. For instance, anything he decided or any, any decision he led and made or any way he led, people would just assume, I guess that's what you do when you have a king, and he could just carry on, right? As far as this little guy knew, from everything he saw and heard around him, life was perfect. Everything in the world was just as it should be and was going along just perfectly. Until. Until that day. Until that day, the man on the horse came. The man who charged towards the palace on the horse at breakneck speed, screaming and yelling as he came. He rode right up the steps to the front door, barely pausing as he jumped off his horse through the front door, screaming as he ran down the hall. Instantly, Ruth, this little guy's nurse, burst into his room, knocking over his toy shoulders and stepping on his little carved chariot, and she scooped him up, this five-year-old boy, in her arms, and off they went. As they stepped into the hall, they ran into one of the other servants running for the front door, and he dropped his stuffed camel, but there was no time to go back for that. They had to leave. They were on their way out with everyone in the building because the news had just been delivered. The king was dead. Not only was the king dead, his grandfather gone. His father also had fallen in battle that very same day at the hands of their longtime enemies, the Philistines. Both of them gone. The palace now reduced to panic as everybody fled. Are the Philistines going to come here now and wipe us out too and finish the job? Who will be king next? How does this work? This is the first time we've ever experienced the loss of a king. He was our first king. Will the next regime carry on the way the world around us does? We wanted a king just like theirs. Now we hope the next guy isn't. Because when they lose a king, the new guy comes and he kills everybody. Everybody who's related to or connected to the former king. They're gone. You don't want any kind of revolt rising up later. You don't want any claim to the throne down, down the road. And so you just clean house. Is that what will happen? Huh. Run indeed, 
And down the hall and out the door they went. Ruth going as fast as she could, her arms clutched around this little five-year-old charge of hers. And as they started down those marble steps, three steps in, her, her ankle twisted just a bit. Just enough. And she dropped the five-year-old prince on the unforgiving stone of those polished steps. And as if that wasn't bad enough, she went down hard on top of him with all of her weight across his little legs. And in that moment, those royal legs were damaged beyond repair, rendering the prince lame and dependent on someone else for the rest of his days. One of the king's servants who was helping guide the process, Ziba, he came and he scooped up this little boy in his arms, hollering at Ruth, urging her along as together they ran for the chariot. She climbed in and he, he shoved the little boy onto her lap, saying, it's okay, I know a place. We still have a friend in the world. He will look after you, you'll be safe there. And off they charged. They left the city and the palace behind forever. They traveled east and they crossed the Jordan and, and they went into this remote, quiet place to the home of their last friend in the world. A place of obscurity, a place of quiet, but a place of safety. It would be there that he would live out his days plucked from the palace and shoved into the shadows. But at least there he would be safe from all threats, both foreign and domestic. And there he lived. Weeks turned into months. Months rolled into years, and as they do, the years stacked up into decades. And day after day, on and on, life unfolded for him. The day came when he actually got married. Down the road, they had their own little boy, Micah. Life seemed to go on just fine. But that day, that day that changed his life forever, that fear that gripped everything around him and charged that atmosphere of the palace that day, that fall that changed the trajectory of his life, that was never far from his mind as he carried on day to day. But once again, things seemed at least settled and pretty good. Until, until that day, the men on the horses came. Oh, they could see the cloud of dust long before they could hear the hoofbeats. In they came, charged right up the lane, stopped in front of the small house. The first one, looking very official-looking, jumped out. He was accompanied by soldiers. We're here for Mephibosheth, he announced. The king demands your presence at the palace in Jerusalem. And he's overwhelmed as once again that fear is reignited in his heart. As, as that fear washes over him and he's transported back those many decades to that moment with that threat hanging over him. 
Where is this going? You can imagine the, the fear that gripped him as he trembled, looking back at the sad, bewildered look on the wife, face of his wife and his young boy as they packed him into a chariot to head him off to his audience with the king. They finally found me. It's over. And as he bounced along in that chariot all the way back to Jerusalem, his thoughts rolling around in his mind, not knowing what's coming next, but willing to guess, and nothing he imagined was going to be pleasant. He had no idea at all what had been happening in the heart of the king, what God had been doing in the heart of the king leading up to that moment. 2 Samuel chapter 8 tells us that David, as we continue along tracking through his life together, that David had finally conquered the Philistines. That thorn in their side for generations, he'd finally conquered the Philistines and the other enemies that had been surrounding Israel and harassing God's people. The enemies had been conquered and set aside. Things had settled down. He, he, he was able to settle into the routine of governing. His leadership structure was established and put in place. We're told in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 8 that David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, Jehoiada was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. And here was the king, settled in, surrounded by men of action, position, power, and influence. The leaders were in place, surrounded by people a king should be surrounded by. And he finally had time to sit down, catch his breath. Finally had time to sit down and catch his breath. And during those days, he had time to reflect to reflect back on all that had happened to get him to this place at this time. Going back to that moment out with dad's sheep, when Eliab came running across the field, his eldest brother yelling, David, leave the sheep with the servants. The prophet, Samuel himself is here, and for some reason he's asking to see you. And from that moment to this, wow, had things happened. I mean, life had its roller coaster moments, did it not? He experienced some incredible highs and some incredibly deep lows. And some of those valleys were long and they were dark. But here he was, finally settled. And as he reflects back on all that God had done to bring him to this place in this moment, his mind wandered back to Saul, the former king. The enemy who had pursued him ruthlessly. And to Saul's son, Jonathan, David's best friend. 
And he thought back to them, and as he did, two conversations echoed around in his mind. In both of those conversations, he had made solemn promises. One was with Jonathan. As he was hiding out from Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan, his best friend, came and found him and hid away with him for a while and they talked and they connected and he said, David, you know that I'm with you. And David promised Jonathan, Jonathan, when I become king, your family has nothing to worry about. I will protect them, I will care for them, I will look after your family. He made that solemn promise to his best friend. Not long later, as Saul continued his pursuit of David, David spared Saul's life. When he had a prime opportunity to kill him and escape, he spared him and said, you are God's king until God says otherwise. I'll be God's king when God tells me it's time. And in the exchange, that conversation that followed, David promised Saul, I will not, when I am king, act like the kings around us act. I will not cut off your name and your family and your descendants from the earth. I will not wipe them out. I will treat them with kindness. And so in these moments of reflection and the safety and comfort of the palace, with these conversations echoing in his heart and his mind, we find David in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel And here's what happened next. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? This is a long time later. Long time later. Decades. Is there anyone? Someone out there connected to Jonathan? Connected to Saul? That I can just just show them kindness Not that they've earned it, not that they deserve it, not that they can pay me back, not that there's any benefit to me in this, but just so I can show them kindness for the sake of my dear friend Jonathan. I must keep that promise. Now there was a servant at the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He he is crippled in his feet. Yes, there's one. But he's no threat to you. Leave him alone. He's no benefit to you. Just just let things be. You ever heard about sleeping dogs? (laughs) Just leave it alone. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And now we pick up where we began. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his faith, face and paid homage. Can you imagine the heart of Mephibosheth in that moment? His whole body trembling as he is set there before the king and as he throws himself to the floor before the king's chair, bows his head and trembling 
surrenders and submits himself to the one seated before him. Wondering, where is this going to go? Can you picture the heart of David as he sees this poor man shaking in his presence like that? And as he looks at the trembling hands and he, he follows them up to the, to the head and he slowly sees Mephibosheth start to rise his head a little bit just to get a peek, just to kind of glance at the king to see what kind of expression might be there. And as he looked up and their eyes met for the first time, there it was. Just for a moment, just that one facial expression, that just the way he held his head, he looks just like his father. He looks just like Jonathan. And David speaks a word this man never expected to hear. With a tone far beyond his imagination, David reaches out his hand and smiles and says, Ah, Mephibosheth, welcome, welcome. Behold, I am your servant, he said. David said to him, Servant? <laughs> I think you've understood, misunderstood, my friend. No, 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 no. Do not be afraid. Don't fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage. He was still bowing before him. And he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I am nothing. I have no value. I have nothing I can contribute. I cannot repay you. I have not earned this. There is nothing you can benefit from me. What in the world are you talking about? And David smiles. And he looks at the son of his friend and he says, No, this isn't about you. <laughs> it isn't about what you've done or what you might one day do. It's not what you could give to me. It's about none of that. This is about your father, Jonathan. Oh, I've got stories to tell you. This is about my dear friend, Jonathan. And a promise I once made long ago, huddled in a cave together, hiding from your grandfather. Boy, do I have stories for you. And I'll tell you, this is not about you. This is all about him. And for his sake, I show you kindness. And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, enough men to do the job. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And in that moment, in that conversation, that's all it took was the length of that conversation for Mephibosheth to go from refugee to wealthy property owner, heir of the king. That's all it took for him to be plucked back from the shadows and return to the palace and to sit again at the king's table, welcomed 
treated there like a son. Oh, like he had once been. Wow, that quickly, everything changed. Well, that wasn't the only promise that was kept that day. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. Micah had heard stories, I'm sure. Now he was going to see what the palace was all about. Micah, son of Mephibosheth, grandson of Jonathan, great-grandson of who? Saul. Saul, I will not wipe out your descendants and remove your line and your name from the earth. That's all in God's hands. I will treat your family with kindness. And he keeps his second promise. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in, in both his feet. He, he had nothing to offer. He needed help to get to the king's table, and when he did, they had to maybe move an extra chair so there was room for him to sprawl out. And here he was surrounded by leaders, royalty, power brokers, royal guests from other places, all of these people you would expect at the king's table, and then this one man. Who's he? And every day he pulled up and tucked into that table was a reminder to him and to all who were in the room of the kindness and grace extended by the king and of the goodness of the king's heart towards his people. And you and I love that story, don't we? We love those stories of people who are at the absolute mercy of someone else being rescued and, and removed from poverty and placed in a place of wealth and prominence and, and, and provision and care. We love that. And this is true. This isn't some fable. This is true. We love to hear those stories from time to time in the news and, and see how these kinds of things unfold. And we just love that. It does our hearts good, doesn't it? And when we can't find those, our hearts wander off to fables. And we love the story of Cinderella, no matter how many times it's been told, or how many different versions there are, or how it might be buried in other stories, but we, we, we have that kind of a story, Cinderella or Annie. <laughs> we just love that. Because when we see those things unfold, or when we hear those types of stories, we ask ourselves, what about me? Is it possible for me to experience that level of kindness? Is it possible that just one day I could be on the other end of that? Oh, sure, there was that time last week when you were in line at, at the drive through at Tim's and you pulled up there in a hurry for work and when you got to the window, Jody looked through the window and handed you your cup of coffee and said, no charge today. The gentleman in the pickup truck just ahead of you paid for your coffee. And for a split second, you had a confused look on your face, and then it was quickly replaced with a smile, and you went, oh, well, that feels better. And then, in an impulse you couldn't resist, you reached for your wallet anyway. You put a $5 bill on that windowsill, and you said, cover the next car. 
you like experiencing kindness, don't you? Or maybe it was that, that day a couple Saturdays back when you were coming out of Zares in, in Kingsville and you'd been sent with a short list, but as tends to happen in the grocery store, you come out with six bags. <laughs> and the cart's already been disposed of and you've got six bags, three in each hand, and they're cutting that painful line across your palm. You remember that? And you're coming through and you're, you're making your way through the line to the door and the bags are sagging as they stretch to the limit of their strength. And a couple of the handles are starting to snap. And then there's that man that's charging across the parking lot, and he's on a mission. Shopping is not his thing, but he's here, and he's got a list. And he's got like those four things. His wife's in the middle of baking. He's got to get home with that list. But as he rushes past, he sees what's going on. And for some reason, this man you don't know just stops, and he takes three of those bags from you. And he smiles and he walks to your car and helps you place them in your trunk before he rushes off with his day. And you say, oh, I like experiencing kindness. But those are just moments of kindness. Those are kind of flashes of, of the idea of kindness. You're longing for something deeper, something more profound, something permanent, the ultimate kindness. The kindness that plucks me from where I am and places me in a position of provision and protection and relationship where I will always be cared for. And those little flashes of kindness just heighten your longing for the real thing. And you hear a story like Mephibosheth and you see the events of his life as they unfolded before the king and you say, oh, could that ever could that ever happen to me? Friends, I am here this morning to tell you a big, fat yes. Yes, it can. I'm here to remind you that in fact it has. Or if for you it hasn't, it certainly could. As early as today, it could happen. Just as Mephibosheth was taken from the, the shadows and placed back in the palace by the kind, gracious heart of King David, I'm here to remind you today that God sent another king. Through that same line, a descendant of David, the one for whom that throne had actually always been intended. And his name is Jesus, God's own son. And he sent him to do better than pluck us from the shadows of east of the Jordan and place us in the palace in Jerusalem for a few years. He came to pluck us from the trash bin and put us on God's trophy shelf. That's what he came to do. God tells us this in the Bible here in Ephesians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul says this, the beginning of chapter 2, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, once you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that was you, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were in the trash bin. Our greatest need is not physical, 
It is not financial or relational or emotional. As intense, as real, and as important as those things are, our greatest need is spiritual. Our greatest not, need is not temporary like these other issues. They are, it is permanent. It goes on forever and ever and ever. Our greatest need is to be rescued. Because you and I, when our feet hit the floor on this planet for the first time, we are rebels. We're dirty, rotten rebels against God. That's who we are. We're children of wrath. That's our nature. The only thing we're good for is to receive God's judgment. We are in the trash bin. Aren't you glad the Bible doesn't end at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Oh, by grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that God, because of His love and His mercy and His grace, reached down and grabbed you from the trash bin and placed you on His trophy case? That's what verse 7 says. That's kind of my translation. Verse 7 says we're on God's trophy case if we're His children. You know what that means? It means that forever and ever and ever, throughout eternity, we are going to be together in the presence of God and we are going to know we shouldn't be here. And you're going to look at me and you're going to say, how in the wide world of sports did he make it? What is he doing there? And I'll be looking right back thinking the same thing. And we'll be looking in the mirror. And we'll be saying, how did we get here? We don't deserve to be here. And what does a trophy do? It's not there for itself. It points us to an incredible act by someone else. And every time we look at this, we will look and say, look at the immeasurable grace of God extended to us in Christ Jesus that we should find ourselves here for eternity. Amazing. And God will get the glory again for His kindness, His grace extended to us in Christ. You and I will not be looking at each other saying, yeah, but he's lame in both feet. You and I will be looking at each other saying, we're stinking rebels. Yet God rescued us and here we are. What grace. And just in case we miss it, Paul continues on and he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and even this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You could not earn this. You do not deserve it. There's nothing you could ever do to pay it back. That's kindness and grace. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, I want to tell you this morning that you can, in fact, experience this ultimate kindness. The kindness, the mercy, the grace of God. The grace that rescues you from being a rebel 
worthy only of his judgment and instead gives you a permanent place of provision and protection and relationship. The question is, will you experience that kindness? Will you reach up with both hands and with white knuckles grab that nail-scarred hand that's extended to you today and hang on for all your worth and say, it is only through Jesus that I can be standing there. Jesus took my place and my punishment so that I could stand in his place so that when God looks at me, he now sees the righteousness of Jesus. I'm turning my back on who I am and all that I've done. I'm not going to do things my way anymore. I humbly, like Mephibosheth, throw myself at the floor at your feet. And here I am. I am your servant. And be welcomed by the face of God, smiling, saying, oh, oh, come on. Come on up. Servant. Servant. No. I've made a place at the table. I've made a place at the table. Come on. Will you? Come and experience the kindness and grace and mercy of God, the ultimate kindness. You can. Have you? Maybe you're here today and you're smiling and you're saying, Steve, this makes my heart feel so good. It's just it's such a reminder of God's grace. It's so refreshing because I've been there and I've experienced that. Oh, and I'm, I'm here in my pew thanking God for that right now in these moments. Have you really received his kindness? Then let me ask you, does it show? You see, Paul spends the rest of his letters talking about what that will look like when we've truly embraced the kindness of God and, and encountered his grace. And one of the things he, he lays out for us, we don't have time to go through it all in detail this morning, but one of the things that Pastor Marty read for us earlier is in chapter 4, verse 32, he says, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Does it show? Friends, I urge you this morning, Come to the king. Bow before him and find his hand outstretched. When you come to him in humility and in surrender and repentance to do things his way, you will find mercy and grace and kindness like you can't even imagine. And if you have, if you're a follower of Jesus, now a rescued, restored child of God, then friends, May God be pleased. May he be blessed. May he smile at our sacrifice this morning. Not just our, our sacrifice of praise, though that is good. Not just our sacrifice of, of financial giving, though that is right. But by our sacrifice of kindness as we reflect and repay his love, his grace, his kindness to others, not because they earned it, not because they deserved it, not because they can one day pay me back and this will work out to my advantage, but simply because 
God, God has granted it to me. God has granted it to us. And so with humble, joyful, grateful hearts, we graciously pass it on.